Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. So let's pray together. Father, we are um, so grateful to you for uh, the mercies that you show. Uh, We know that every good gift does come from you, uh, from the Father of lights, on whom there is no shadow of shifting. Uh, You are ever the same in your goodness, your sovereignty. And so we know the gospel message, the good news, is good news um, now and forever. And so we want to stake our lives on the gospel, our hope on the good news that you have given us of salvation and of um, of being right with you. And so we pray that you'd help us today as we think about that, to think um, with grateful hearts, as well as with uh, hearts that are um, desiring to share the gospel with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Welcome. Um, so I'm kind of a little bit off to the side here, but maybe... Some of you in the back may not be able to see me all the way, and that's okay. Uh, you can see the screen. Uh, the screen really mainly is just going to have the two graphics that you have on your handout. Um, that's So there's nothing, so don't get too excited. But it's in color, so that's exciting. So you can see that. Um, this uh, morning we're planning on concluding our series on what divides Roman Catholics and Protestants. Um, as a reminder, the, the reasons, we gave several reasons at the beginning when we started this for doing a series on this. Um, two of the main reasons we mentioned was one is to protect the flock, right? Doctrine, right doctrine matters. Um, and so uh, pastors, shepherds have a role in protecting the flock from false teaching. And uh, Roman Catholicism is is a form of false teaching. It gets the gospel wrong. We're going to see that today. We've seen that throughout the past several weeks. Um, so the goal isn't to be mean, but j- just as in protecting what needs to be protected, you're not mean in doing that. Right? Now, you could do it with mean intentions, I suppose, but uh, rightly done, it's not mean, it's not wrong. In fact, it's very right when it comes to doctrine, especially the gospel. Um, and then also to equip us to more effectively share the gospel with our Roman Catholic friends, Roman Catholic neighbors, uh, because it is tricky. It's hard. Uh, if, you, if you have Roman Catholic friends, you start talking to them, you're going to use similar words. You're gonna, it's not like they're not going to use the word justification or they're not going to use the word faith. They're going to use those words. They just don't mean it the way that the Bible means it. And so we just need clarification in our own minds so we are equipped to share the gospel. Because as we're going to end our time today, we're going to see Roman Catholics do need the gospel. Uh, We've said before, you know, I think there can be people who perhaps are in the Roman Catholic Church for at least some period of time that maybe are genuinely Christians. Probably not going to stay there if they're genuinely Christian. The Lord will probably instruct, train, discipline them. Um... But don't hear that as, well, then, you know, I think my friend who's Roman Catholic is probably a Christian, so I probably, I don't really have to worry about sharing the gospel with them. Don't hear that. No, you do need to share the gospel with them, either A, to help them see if this is really what you believe, this doesn't line up with the church, with their teaching, where you're going, or B, just because I think you're Christian, that doesn't mean you're Christian. When you're going to Roman Catholic Church, that's a pretty big difference. Like, there's, you're really, it seems like you probably don't fully grasp the gospel. At least, I should, that should probably be my default is what I'm saying, is you need to hear the gospel rather than, well, you're my friend, you talk about Jesus, I think you're probably a Christian, right? Um, again, I don't mean that in a mean way, it's just it's uh, assuming the gospel doesn't end well. It really doesn't, right? I mean, it could be, Satan, is, Satan is happy for us to assume other people know the gospel. Um, he's happy for us to assume we know the gospel. That's why we, we rehearse the gospel to ourselves, right? We remind ourselves of gospel truths every week and hopefully every day. That's really the goal. So um, we need to soberly examine the differences. That's what we've been doing. R.C. Sproul puts it well in his book, Are We Together? The, first, uh, the introduction of that book is, is titled, At Stake, the Gospel. 
And this is what he says. I think this is good just as we, we end our last section in which we're going to look at the gospel in Roman Catholics. And he says, our task, as I see it, is to be faithful not to our own traditions or even the heroes of the Reformation. So that's important. We're not trying to establish some new tradition. That's not, Protestants, that's not the goal. We can get caught up in that, right? As if, if we quote a reformer, then we're quoting scriptural truth. Oftentimes we are, because oftentimes they taught the scriptural truth. But the point is, what would give even that authority is the Bible. That's the authority, right? So it's not, it's not, to, not even to get tied up with that. We must be faithful to the truth of scripture. We love the Reformation because the reformers loved the truth of God and stood for it so courageously. And in doing so, they brought about a recovery of the purity of the gospel. We should be willing to die for those truths that are absolutely essential to the Christian faith. When the gospel is at stake, we have to, quote, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. So that has to be our goal. That We have to take uh, the gospel with that level of seriousness because that's it's the only message of life, right? It's the only way we're going to find life or anyone else is going to find life. So as we look at this today, we're kind of summarizing much of what we've seen, but we're putting it together in a, okay, all these different pieces, some of them directly deal with the gospel, some of them didn't, but they still were helpful to know that we talked about earlier, right? So we went through things like authority, where do you get authority from, and uh, what's the mass all about, and things like that. What we're trying to do now is pull together the most important of all those issues, because the, the issues that really tie into what is the gospel, the good news, according to Roman Catholicism, and then remind ourselves, what is the good news in the Bible? So I guess I'll, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to summarize a bunch of little of the strands we talked about and put them all into the, this is the question. This is the issue, right? That's what I'm trying to do. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to summarize that. We're going to look at these two, and then we're going to conclude with thoughts about reaching Roman Catholic friends with the true gospel. So what is the gospel according to Roman Catholics, and how does it compare to the Bible? I'm going to use a chart. Uh, you have it on your handout. You have the one half of it on, or one part of it there, and then the other part um, is on the back side. So this part, first part is the Roman Catholic path to eternity. And so this summarizes for us much of what we've talked about. Um, I, I have a quote, uh, I think it, yeah, it is on your handout. I thought this was helpful. This is, so Mike Gendron put together this, this uh, handout, or this, I'm sorry, not the handout, the, the graphic right here, which by the way, we do have some tracks. I'll, t- I'll mention them later. They're up there. The red ones are the ones that have this graphic in it, Okay. The other one also does comparison between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. But um, if you're looking for this chart, that's where it came out of. Um, so Greg Allison didn't, didn't make this track, but I think he still summarizes it helpfully in his book when he says this, For Catholics, justification is, quote, not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man, end quote. So he's quoting from Council of Trent there. Salvation then combines forgiveness, regeneration, progress in holiness, and the loving performance of good deeds. It is a lifelong process because most Catholics will fall short of the purity they should have achieved in this earthly life. When they die, their soul goes to purgatory. So this is the Roman Catholic path to eternity. Um, and you see that on your handout. You have heaven up there above that blue line at the, at the end. You have purgatory kind of below that and in between. And then you have hell for those who would die in mortal sin or completely rejecting the gospel. But, but your Roman Catholic friends, most of them, what their thought is, is I'm going to end up in purgatory and eventually heaven. Okay? Um, so let's trace this out here. You see at the beginning there, water baptism. That is pretty key. So uh, this is a key distinction between what the Bible says and what Roman Catholics teach. Their teaching is that, and we've said this before, but water baptism regenerates. It deals with original sin. 
It erases original sin. It's, it's a washing away of original sin. Um, you think about Romans 5, right? All, in Adam, we are all dead in Adam. We are all sinners by virtue of our connection to Adam. And so what they say is, water baptism erases that. It deals with that in that way. Now, um, we have to maintain being stain-free because we do need to merit heaven by all the good works we're going to do. So, so if, we, if we commit a sin, we're no longer up there at righteous. We now drop below that line of heaven. You see that on the chart? Um, and that can happen by various types of sin. There are two different types of sin. So again, we didn't really talk about this before. This is important to realize. When you start talking about two different types of sin, um, the bio, that, that's a dangerous way to think about sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. death. It doesn't say the wages of mortal sins is death. Now, I'm not saying they don't, they, they do point to some you know, passages like, um, uh, is it First John? About the sin that doesn't lead unto death. Um, if you read the context, you realize John's point is, is not contradicting what Romans is saying. Romans is the big picture, sin leads to death. He's talking in there about how we restore fellow Christians and things like that through counsel and other things. Um, but the point here is, um, if you commit venial sins, uh, they, they result in a temporal punishment and purgatory because yes, you do have to merit it. You, you have to actually have holiness that is credited from your actions and your life that line up with God's holiness such that he will let you into heaven. And so what they're saying is, okay, your water baptism cleanses you as long as you don't fall into mortal sin, you should have these venial sins, you can work that off through different things, confession and some different things you can do. And, and that's what you need to do. But if you don't, you'll end up in purgatory and eventually, after how, it depends on how many thousands, millions of years you're going to have to spend there, depending on what you did, eventually you will end up in heaven. Mortal sins, on the other hand, drop you all the way down to the level of hell. You see that. So these are sins um, that are grave violations of the law of God with full knowledge and deliberate choice. They merit hell unless a person engages in sacraments and good works. I'm pretty sure, I, I feel like I read this somewhere recently, I might be wrong, but um, that even like attending mass, if you, if you don't attend mass a certain number of times, I think that ends up being the category of mortal sin. Um, so basically, you know, things that you find in the Ten Commandments or things related to, you know, maybe keeping the Sabbath, they may tie that in somehow. But the point is, these are, these are sins where you know what you're doing and you do it anyway, uh, and they're, they're grave offenses to God. Again, the Bible doesn't really give us different levels of offense like that. The Bible does talk about different consequences in terms of our experience here on earth, right? So, so yes, we ought to expect that when I murder somebody, that that's going to carry maybe different consequences than other things, this side of, of heaven. But in terms of justification, right standing before God, one sin, even if it's a white lie, is enough to condemn us because God is a God of truth, eternally so. So that one temporal sin is against an eternally holy God and therefore merits eternal judgment. Right? We have to have a, this, I think this lowers the view of God is what you end up doing when you start categorizing sin this way. Um, okay, but anyway... So mortal sins um, cause big problems, but you can deal with that too through the sacraments. So there are seven sacraments. We didn't really go into depth on all those. Um, you can probably do a quick Google search and find all seven sacraments listed. Um, uh, the Council of Trent, they said this about sacraments. If anyone says that grace is not conferred by the sacrament, ex opera operato, but that faith in God's promises is alone sufficient for obtaining grace, let him be anathema. Okay, so that fancy Latin phrase basically means if you say that, um, that these sacraments don't work just by the fact that you show up and have it happen to you. In other words, you could be unbelieving about it. 
In other words, if you deny that this sacrament in and of itself, regardless of what you believe or don't believe, gives you grace, you're anathema. You see what we're saying here? It's, it's you come, you get baptized, grace. Doesn't matter if you believe or not, right? You get married, matrimony, grace. Like directly infused into your life. And now you actually, because of that grace, have the ability to live out what God tells you to live out and merit salvation. Um, I want to talk briefly about penance. That's one of the sacraments because this is really one of the main ones you do to deal with mortal sin. Um, so they have to show contrition. They have to go to a, a priest and confess what they've done and then they have to do penance. Now this idea of penance was based, and this is one of Martin Luther's main issues. He starts reading the Bible in Greek and he realizes that the Latin translation of one of the gospel passages where it says, repent, they translated it as do penance. Do stuff to make up for what you did. Okay, in the Latin, that may be what the Latin says, but it's not what the Greek says, and the Bible's written in Greek. In other words, he's reading what the Bible actually said. And he says, that's not what this says. This says repent, that's different. Um, but the idea is they have to do penance. And that can be usually things like fasting. You have a certain amount of days you have to fast, or certain prayers you have to offer, certain almsgiving to the poor you have to do. In other words, it's do, 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 do. Do something. The priest will tell you what you need to do, and you have to do it to have your sins erased and dealt with so you don't end up in hell if it's a mortal sin, right? Um, our own good works are also part of this. You can see that in this kind of this middle area where it says good works and sacraments produce merit. Good works, according to the uh, Catholic uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2027, so that's the like kind of paragraph or section. It says, moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life. Do you see the, I mean, merit graces. What is grace? Unmerited favor. It is a gift, but we can merit it, right? To attain eternal life as well as necessary temporal goods. So if you die without the good works and merit and all these things lined up, you will end up in purgatory. And purgatory is there so that you might achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So again, we talked about this, but you see what the issue is. Jesus' sacrifice is not sufficient. It is, now it, they're going to tell you, if you ask them it's sufficient, they're going to say it is. Well, yeah, it's because of Jesus that we even are, are able to do all this stuff to merit salvation. That's not what we mean when we say Jesus' work is sufficient. We mean things like Hebrews means. He made sacrifices for sins and he sat down at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us. We mean things like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is sufficient. That's not what they mean. Um, so th there are ways to shave time off purgatory. Uh, indulgences and the treasury of merit. We've talked about this a little bit, but the treasury of merit contains the prayers and good works of Mary and the saints. You remember saints, their understanding of saints are these are people who they did enough to merit heaven and they therefore do not have to spend time in purgatory and they bank their extra good works in what is called the treasury of merit. Uh, the Pope has the keys to that treasury and he was willing to distribute it for the right price. That sounds crass, but it's true. This is, this is really what kicked off Reformation for Martin Luther in one sense with the 95 Theses. It was really over this issue of indulgences primarily. So you have Johann Tetzel showing up to town saying things like, as, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And what they're trying to do a building project. That's why Tetzel is going around raising money. If you drop your money in here, your loved one who is suffering the horrors of purgatory, it's not hell, but it's, I mean, it's bad. They, they can get out faster. Right? 
Um, so again, I understand that sounds crass. I don't think if you asked a Roman Catholic priest, they would affirm what Tetzel was saying. I mean, they probably, he was kind of like the used car salesman of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Um, I don't think it's that crass, but the, but the reality is the same. That is the issue. You can, through buying indulgences, decrease your time in purgatory, which is a completely unbiblical category anyway. It's either heaven or hell, according to the Bible. Um, this is not just an old thing. This is not just a 1500s deal. In 2016, the Roman Catholic Church celebrated the year of mercy in which plenary indulgences were offered for certain activities. So plenary means it's not limited to one little thing. It's kind of any and everything can be given an indulgence. Um, now, they do have to do certain things. It's not always as simple as paying money. So we have to be honest about that. We're not just saying it's as crass as that, but usually there's paying of money and then doing some things. Like you have to show up at a certain masses or you got to make up sometimes it's a pilgrimage you can make a pilgrimage to a certain place um and uh, you can also purchase indulgences via a gregorian mass card where you purchase a mass card where a series of 30 masses will be said on behalf of your departed loved one this is generally done at funerals uh they can buy these 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 things um so the point is this is the roman catholic view is jesus plus other things faith plus merit Bottom line, that is the gospel according to the Roman Catholic Church. So again, we're not trying to be mean and we're not trying to be nitpicky. This is too, this is too big of an issue. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. So we need to talk about the biblical path. Let's think about the biblical path you see on the back of your handout. This is what's on the back of your handout in color. <clears throat> A right standing before God is given through faith in Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. Um, you can turn to Ephesians 2. I'm going to read a few things out of there. Um, I'll read this thing from the middle of, of this little picture you have there while you turn to there. But it says, Justification is a permanent verdict by God that declares a sinner righteous because of his faith in Christ. God continues to see the sinner as if he were righteous, even if he sins, because the basis for justification is the righteousness of Christ. Sin or holy living has no effect on justification. Um, if, if you're justified, heaven is your destination. Now, people can twist the doctrine of justification to mean if I just mouth a prayer, I'm justified. Justification is for those who God regenerates. They actually are given new life. They are born again into, it's, it's not, in other words, it's not, you, you can't have a, you know, it's not good to have a gospel tract that says the six steps to heaven. There are not six steps to heaven. It's not as if you do six things and God's going to give you salvation and then it's once saved, always saved. That is a, and this is what Roman Catholics push back on, and rightly so. This is not the true gospel. But this is the false version of the gospel you find in some evan evangelical churches. Right? The gospel is God must born you again, give you new life. So you need to hear about your sin, and, and when God opens your eyes to see the horrors of your sin, you say, God, save me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're like that tax collector, Right? Pharisees over here looking up to God saying, look how great I am. And you're over here just beating your breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have no way into your kingdom. And God gives you new life. Even that desire is a sign that God has given you new life. And you believe in Jesus, the only sufficient Savior. I'm going to read a couple verses for you um, to show this. Although, again, we've been talking about this for weeks. But John 5, 24, truly, this is Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, can you fill in the blank? Eternal life. It's not just you'll get into purgatory and then eventually heaven. It's eternal life. You have it. It is yours. He does not come into judgment. 
not purgatory. There's, there's, there's no judgment you have to face to pay off some part of your debt. But has passed, has passed, perfect tense, has passed from death to life. So how does one pass from death to life according to Jesus? Let me read it again. Hear my word and believe. Believes him who sent me. Um, Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So what is the role of works in salvation? Nothing. Nothing in salvation. Now, again, we have to be clear. We teach what the Bible says, which is good works are important in the Christian life. They are not just a nice add-on for those Christians that want to try it out. If there are no good works, you're not a Christian. That is very different than you earn being a Christian by your good works. This is not just like theological hair splitting. There's a huge difference. What is the basis by which God will accept you on judgment day? Because you are a sinner, you are guilty, you deserve hell. That's true. What's the basis? If it's baptism and then my meriting what I needed to merit, that doesn't work with Titus 3.5. If it's he saves me, and then we keep reading in, in, in Titus, and he regenerates me. This is how he does this, through, through the washing of regeneration. Then to say I'm saved means I'm a new creature. A new creature has a certain nature. That nature gets lived out. So yes, it won't do to say I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't have that new nature. I'm a Christian, but I still just give in to sin as if it doesn't matter. Now, to Christian sin, yes, we sin. The, you understand what I'm saying, though? There's a very big difference there. This is not just a word game. Um... So, uh, Ephesians 2. You're in Ephesians 2. You can see the, the first verses there uh, begin by talking about what was our status. Well, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Um, we were guilty because of this. We weren't just dead. We were guilty dead because we were doing what we wanted in our rebellion against God. And uh, he keeps going here. And then by the time you get down to verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so what is a person's status in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? The people he's talking to. You what? Just. Justified. You have been saved. Perfect verb here. This is true. This is, it happened, and it, can, it is true of you in an abiding way. You have been saved. It's not going to go away. How did that happen? By what means? For grace. Yes, by grace, the cause, through faith. The instrument is faith. That's what connects you to the cause of what God has done. By simply saying, God, I bring nothing. I trust you alone. I have nothing to bring. I need you. Okay? Um, we have a contrast, and not. What is, what is faith and grace contrasted with? Works. It is, and not by your works. So, I mean, that removes all, there's no potential for confusion there. It can't be you're saved by grace, and then you kind of got to keep doing some stuff to make sure you maintain that grace. And, and of course, God's giving you the grace to do that, but you got to do it. No, your works play zero role in your salvation and your, self, and your justification before God. Now, it's true that those who are justified are regenerated. That's going to affect the way they live. That's true. And in fact, we see that in the next verse, which we're going to look at in just a second. But notice first here, result. What's the result? or the uh, purpose of salvation, so that either gives you a result or a purpose. So I just gave it away there. What is the purpose that God designed salvation to be 
by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. What was that? His glory alone. His glory alone, so that no one can boast. That is the purpose. Okay, um, Romans, you don't have to turn here, stay in Ephesians 2, but Romans three twenty-seven through 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? Paul says, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For, so here comes the reason. This is what he means. This is why you can't boast. This is why it's by faith and not by works. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. How is a person justified? By faith, apart, without, to the exclusion of works. Pretty clear. Okay, um, and then Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So what is the role of good works? Again, Protest, uh, Catholics often say, look, the, our issue is uh, Protestants, you, you, you have no room for good works. You, you, you remove any need for it. One thing we can say is in Romans 6, um, what does Paul address there? Does anyone remember? Can you be saved and just go on sinning as if, it, and he, he says, by no means, you can't just go on sinning as if nothing has changed. Right? So, so here's one point. If you preach a true gospel, should you expect that people are going to ask you, well, then what about good works? You should expect that. Paul anticipated it and answered it and said, no, this doesn't mean there's no room for good works. It just, we're not justified by good works. We're not declared right by good works. We're not entering heaven because of good works. They are, good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. So in one sense, can we say good works are necessary if by that what you mean is true believers, if they live long enough, you know, I mean, well, actually, even if they live for one second, I mean, the thief on the cross showed good works by trusting in the Lord. I mean, that was, but that was God's work in him. But the point is, you're going to see us do things that look like we belong to God, right? That's going to happen. But it is the fruit, not the root. Now, we can look like really unhealthy trees, which is why, there are plenty of times you see Christians who really, they really, it's hard to pick them out as looking like a Christian, right? Um, but the point is, we must realize salvation is by grace alone. Look at verse 10. So after he gets done saying how salvation comes to us, verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so salvation is not by works, but notice God saves us, and in saving us, it's like we are now a new creation. Not, not like we are, we are a new creation. And he uses the illustration here of we're on like a workbench. God saves us and designs us for what? For good works. But you can't read that and ignore verses 8 and 9, or really verses 1 through 9, which tells us this is not the way you are made right with God. This is the result of someone who's made right with God because he makes you right with him and then designs you and sends you forward to reflect his glory in a way that you were not able to do before. Okay, are we clear on that? Is this clear? You're not, I'm not leaving you confused? Okay. Um, let's see. I want to talk briefly... I want to talk briefly about... Um, a little bit more about good works, just... Uh, just to clear up some confusion, perhaps. Look at Romans 4. Does anyone have any questions at this point before I go on? Yeah. Do you, uh, I've had several Catholic friends in my lifetime, but do, do 
I haven't heard debate mention why the, the whole reason for good works. They mentioned that it, the whole purpose is to glorify God to know that some people know there's a God. Right, yeah. Or is it just to get somewhere? Right. Uh, that's a good question. I would imagine they would say both. Um, I, I don't think they would say we're not trying to glorify God. But the issue is, but you're, you're right in bringing that up, though, because what does he say in Ephesians? The purpose of this is so that you have no, you have no reason to boast. Um, Romans, we just read that passage. You have no reason to boast. The reality is that if you do add it as a way to get to heaven, what do you do? You also add a reason to boast, right? So I think you're right to say, what's their emphasis? I do think the emphasis is it's a way to get somewhere. I think, though, if you were to ask them, they would give you the probably, they would add on that theologically right. Well, yes, it's to glorify God. I think they would say that. But the reality is, Paul's already told us, if you're adding good works to be right with God, that doesn't glorify God. So, yeah, is that what you were getting at? Yeah, I think it's helpful. Yeah. And, and we as evangelicals do this too. Yeah. You know, I don't go to R-rated movies. I don't. Right. Whatever. Yeah. And that makes me right before God. So we can set up uh, our own legalism to be right with God, right? Now, legalism is not, I desire to please and obey God, so I take thought of my actions and steps, directions I'm going, and I do say no to things, maybe even some things that are fine for other people. That's not legalism. But legalism is, I think this is going to earn favor with God. This is what I need to do because, man, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be judged on Judgment Day and go to hell, right? Perfect love casts out fear in that sense. I'm right with God. Perfect love also says I want to obey you, right? Trust is like it won't do to say, look, I trust you, God. I just, I'm not going to trust what you say over here about greed, sexuality, money, whatever. You know, I no. Now, as Christians, do we struggle to trust God with those things? Yes, that's why we constantly are saying, Lord, thank you for forgiving me. For, please forgive me again. You know, but you, I, know it's, I know you've cleansed me forever. Thank you for that. Um, good. Okay, so let's talk about Romans 4 real quick. Romans 4, 1 through 3. I want to talk briefly about James and Paul and, and what they talk about works. We're still on this idea of, of works because sometimes people get confused about this. Um, so what then shall we say it was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if, by Abra- if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Um, here's what the scripture says. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. So belief and it's counted to your account. It's imputed to your account. Your bank account now reads positive righteousness before God, not because of what you did, because of what Jesus did. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, which again, compare that to that Roman Catholic catechism statement, where we can do these good works to merit grace. Grace, merit. Paul's saying that doesn't work, right? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. His faith is counted as righteous. Who? The ungodly one who believes and doesn't work. So notice too, Who's the one who's justified? It actually is the ungodly one who just believes in Jesus. It's not the one who earned godliness, right? So what is Paul referring to? He refers back to Abraham's life in Genesis 15. In 15, 6, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God gives him these promises. Abraham believes and God counts it as righteousness. You are credited with right standing before me. That's the, and so, so what question is Paul addressing here? What's he addressing? How a person is 
Right. Becomes, right. Right. becomes right with God, is, is justified in the sense that they become right with God, that they will face no condemnation. That's what he's talking about here. So I, you have to keep the question in mind and where, where he's referring to in Genesis when you think about James in James chapter 2. So you can look at James chapter 2 briefly. Um, if you want to, I'm going to read it, but James chapter 2. I want you to tell me what question is James answering in chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What question is James answering? Can a worthless faith save someone? Yeah, so he's, his question is about faith. Are there different types of faith? Can this type of faith, a faith that has no, nothing changes, so I think what he's talking about will be someone, and we'll see this in a second, because he says even the demons can say stuff that's true about God. I think he's talking about that type of faith, a faith that intellectually you know that's true. I know there's a God, right? The demons just don't want to submit to him. They're not going to submit to him. But they know it's true. That's, that's a type of faith. That's a type of, I trust this is true. I just don't think it's lovely, good, beautiful, and I'm investing my whole life in it. So he's saying, can that type of faith that then has no effect is that actually saving faith? That's the question James is answering. James is not answering, does works give you the right standing before God? Do you need, you know, can, can you, do you need to do more to get God to accept you on judgment day? Because the issue is James is going to use the word justification, but what I'm saying is because we know he's asking a different question, we should realize he's using justification in a different sense here. He doesn't mean before God in terms of on judgment day. He's not contradicting what Paul just said. Um... So his answer is that if there's true faith, there is true life. If there is dead faith, it is not living faith, and there is no, you haven't been regenerated. That's what he's saying. Look at verses 17 through 19. So also, faith by itself. So he just got done giving an example of, of people who say they have faith, but they don't. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's saying, look, this type of faith that doesn't produce any works, it's dead. It's just empty words. It's not you haven't genuinely believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to where you're connected to him. You just said nice stuff about him. You don't believe it. Uh, but someone will say, wait, did I skip ahead here? No. But someone will say, you with me there, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So that's how he proves his point is um, that's what he's talking about. So then he gets down in verses 20 and 21. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So again, that's his issue. If, you, if you're thinking your faith is such that it doesn't produce any works and that type of faith is going to save me, he's saying that is a useless faith. It's not true faith. That's, that's, the whole thing has been kicked off by his initial question. Can that faith save somebody? Dead faith. Can it save someone? And then he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So if you just read that out of context, you, I could, you could see how you get to the Roman Catholic view. But the context doesn't let you read it that way. Okay, and the wider context doesn't let you read it that way either because I, this, is how, this is how I don't think he's contradicting Paul even in this quote. Where is he quoting from in Abraham's life? It's not Genesis 15. It's Genesis 22. Abraham believes God, it's counted as righteous. We see Abraham's faith 
justified in a different sense, not, not justification before God, but justification in a, it's been lived out such that everyone around him, everyone is seeing this. And you could even say a sense, God is seeing it getting lived out. That yes, I've implanted true faith and this is what true faith does. So that when he gets to sacrificing Isaac, he does what God says because it is that type of faith. The faith that you saw exercised in Genesis 15 is this type of faith, true faith. Where was he justified? Genesis 15. In another sense, by the time you get Genesis 22, he's just, that faith is justified to be shown, yeah, that was a real faith. That was true connection to God. God did that work in Abraham. This wasn't Abraham just saying something because he felt like God told him all these promises. He's like, well, I guess I got to say something. I believe. No, that's not what was going on. So I think that's what's going on. And then I think, I think we just see that as you keep reading through here, he's going to keep dealing and he's going to go back and deal with Genesis 15 as well. But I think the point is the context shows us what James is talking about. Okay, so the biblical path ends with what? With God's people, with the Lord, and eventually in the fullness of heaven. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, Philippians 1, the idea is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day, yes, our bodies will be resurrected. And one day, after the millennial kingdom, right, all these other things, yes, heaven, the full new heavens, new earth. That's where it's going. And, and there's not this intermediate state is what I'm saying. There's not this purgatory state for the true believer. We don't see that in scripture. So we need to share the gospel with our Roman Catholic friends. That brings us to this last section. Uh, Romans 10, you can look at Romans 10. In Romans, you'll remember Paul deals with the Jews, and he's Jewish by heritage. And you remember he talks about, at the beginning, about how they keep trying to be justified by works of the law. Romans, I think it's 2, maybe even into 3. He keeps talking about this idea that they, they keep trying to be justified by the law, that they're going to keep it and they're going to they're get salvation. So when you get to, to here, listen to what he says in Romans 10 and 1 and following. Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them, Jews, witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of what? Of the righteousness of God. What is he talking about? Righteousness of God in Romans is talked about the gospel. That God's righteousness comes by faith apart from works of the law. Romans is really what opened up, Romans and Psalms really opened up for Luther to see that when, it, when Paul says righteousness, the righteous will live by faith, he didn't mean they would live by their own righteousness. He meant they would live by the imputed, grace-given righteousness from Jesus' life to them. So they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So the ironic thing is they think that they're earning righteousness and this is what God wants, but they're not submitting to the true righteousness of God, what is right before God. For Christ is the end of the law. This, this, is, this is what, this is, if you want to submit to the true righteousness of God, this is what it is. Christ is the end of the law. No more law keeping for, the, for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's through Christ that we have righteousness given to us for everyone who believes, right? So what I'm trying to say is I think the parallel is we start thinking about evangelizing Roman Catholics. I think it's similar to what we have Paul dealing with, the, with these Jews, right? So what should we do? We should have a heart that desires to see them saved. We should recognize that just because they use similar words doesn't mean they don't need to hear the gospel. Again, you may have Roman Catholic friends and they might be born again. The, the, I don't know. They're, again, you can be, that can be true. I would say it's probably very unlikely to be in a Roman Catholic church long term and be genuinely born again. 
I think that's true. So, so the point is, um, don't, we have to have Paul's vision where we don't take it for granted. Do not assume the gospel. We cannot assume the gospel. Now you might ask about it and be pleasantly surprised to hear that they believe the gospel fully and truly. And then the next conversation is, let me show you what Roman Catholic teaching is and let's get you out of that church. Right? And so that's where we need to go with this. We, we must realize they need the gospel just like the Jews in Paul's day. And by the way, we shouldn't look at them with anger or hatred. The, the same thing of Paul here. My heart's desire is that they would be saved. They have this zeal. They, they talk about loving God, but they, they've established righteousness of their own. They need Christ's righteousness alone. And that's really the issue. So when you're talking to them, one of your main things is to clarify, are you trusting in Jesus alone for the salvation that you need? What other things, what do you need to get into heaven? And as long as they, so this is how you know when you're having these conversations because they're gonna use the same words as you are. But if you ask that question and there's some, is Jesus plus something else, there's more explaining to do. There's more praying and talking to them to do. They haven't arrived yet, right? Um, so we, we need to recognize that they need the gospel and we need to share it with them. And we, we ought not give up on them either because Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everybody who believes, you shouldn't sit here and think, well, the Roman Catholics, they're just, they're so caught up in this, there's no way they're going to be saved. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Roman Catholic, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, atheist, right? That's what they need. So in one sense, everything is, that we're saying here is the same. There's, not, there's no unique way to evangelize Roman Catholics in that sense. They need the gospel. You need to familiarize yourself with the gospel, be ready to proclaim it. But here's some practical things I would say. One thing is, I got this from Greg Allison. He's done a lot of evangelism with Roman Catholics. Um, and we've actually had this book, One-to-One Bible Reading, we gave you a while ago. And basically all that does is encourage you to invite one person or a couple people. Let's sit down and let's just read through a portion of scripture and we'll look at it and try to understand what the Bible says together. Um, and so you do that with a gospel. You could even tie it to whatever gospel that if you look online, you can find the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church. You can figure out what gospel they're in each Sunday. And you could say, let's meet up and we'll, we'll read that passage and, that, and then we'll just talk about it. We'll talk about what, what you're going to hear read on Sunday when they get to that portion of your liturgy. And then and we're just going to ask questions. We're going to look at the context. We're going to make observations. So the observations I would say would be things mainly if you're in the gospel like, what do we see about Jesus? What is he doing? What are the people around him doing and saying? And then meaning. What does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus said this or did this? What does it mean that these people said this or did this? And then application. What do we do differently or believe differently based on what we've seen in this gospel passage? I think because Roman Catholics are saying that they do believe the Bible is important. Now, again, they have other authorities. I get that. But I, I'm just saying that gives you an inroad. Let's just read the Bible together. You can, and again, you can do that with anybody. But I do think with Roman Catholics, it's a good starting point. With an atheist, you may have to do a little more. I mean, I still think you could start right there with an atheist, but there maybe needs to have conversations about, let's talk about why God even exists. You don't believe he exists. Let's talk about that. Um, so that's one way. The other way is some of these tracks up here we have might be helpful. I encourage you to pick up one, uh, maybe even one of each on your way out. If you can, if we run out, we'll order more. Um, but um, it, what, what he does is he compares Roman Catholicism to what the scripture says. And so this is the other way is just helping them see side by side. These are these two things. You, really, it, you can't really hold both of these the way the Roman Catholic Church is telling you you can hold both of them because they contradict. And so the issue is, where are you going to land on this? Is the Bible really God's word? And if it is, then you're going to have to jettison all this tradition that contradicts it. 
And so you, might, you may use those tracks to help you in those conversations as well. Um, again, you really have to clarify the gospel when it comes down to it isn't Jesus plus. That's really what you're trying to clarify when you're going through these things. So think about that when you're asking these questions. So you might ask questions like, are you sure you're going to heaven when you die? Roman Catholics do not have assurance they're going to heaven. So as long as they're telling you no, you have more talking to do. Don't just assume they're a Christian. Um, have you ceased relying on your own efforts to earn God's love and forgiveness? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Right? As long as it's, yeah, Jesus, but if I don't go to mass, I'm gonna end up in purgatory. It's not Jesus alone. And so that, that's what I have for your summary there. Roman Catholicism, if we're gonna summarize all this, is basically, re- it's a religion of plus. God's authoritative word plus tradition. Christ's work plus the need for human priests and the merits of Mary and the saints and the mass and we could go on and on and on. Faith plus good works to, my, to merit final justification. Grace plus the sacraments and good works to earn salvation. Glory of God plus the veneration of saints and Mary. It is the religion of plus. Right? Um... Biblical Christianity affirms scripture is the ultimate and final authoritative word from God. Christ alone is sufficient savior by his once for all redeeming work. Jesus' work is applied to us by faith alone. And this is all a gift of grace alone. And it's all for the glory of God alone. So that is really what the difference is. Um, This is why we we make such a big deal out of this. It's not to be mean. It's not to be unkind. Um, It's because this is truth and it matters. It is, it is eternal reaching truth. So pray for your Catholic friends. Ask God to give you opportunities to share the gospel with them. Uh, ask maybe even that God would open their eyes as they sit in a mass hearing the scriptures read. That God may use that to pique their interest and say, wait a second, what does that mean? Right? Um, but the point is, we, we need to take the gospel to our Roman Catholic friends in, because we love them. That's what we need to do. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time uh, we've had. We just we do pray with heavy hearts for those around us, not just our Roman Catholic friends, but so many that, that um, just think they're, they're on the right path when really they need to know um, your glory alone through Jesus alone uh, by trusting in him alone. So we pray you give us opportunities. We pray you'd soften hearts in those that we would encounter and uh, that we would do this all with a desire to glorify you and see them uh, benefit uh, from Christ's work. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.